Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. A few years ago, some people got on a plane in the Midwest, and they thought they were flying, I think it was to uh, another Midwestern town, maybe Chicago. When they landed, they found out they were in Minneapolis. The pilots had fallen asleep. The plane was on autopilot, landed at the wrong airport. And it really does highlight the truth that sometimes you don't know where you're going. And I, I guess I should ask you the question, where are you headed in life? Where are you going in your life? Or maybe I should put it this way. How do you determine which of life's roads to take? And the answer to this question is numerous and varied. There are rational options. For some, the answer is I should do what's best for the group, for society, for our culture. They do what makes most people happy. And that answer comes from the philosophy called utilitarianism, first expressed by English philosopher Jeremy Bentham, later expressed by uh, modern American philosopher Spock, when he said uh, something how the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, right? I mean, that's just Jeremy Bentham's words in Leonard Nimoy's mouth. The greatest happiness for the greatest number is the measure of right and wrong, Bentham wrote. But on the opposite side of utilitarianism is the notable opposition American individualism. It's not about what makes the most people happy. It's about what makes me happy. And this was most recently espoused by radio philosopher Rush Limbaugh, who spent more than 20 years behind his, quote, golden EIB microphone, Monday to Friday, noon to three, teaching his version of individualism. His concept was not so much about the many, but it was about the individual, oneself. And if individual freedom, individual choices over the consideration of the masses sounds selfish, it is. I mean, ultimately, you know, the word individual is in the term, right? And those are rational options. People look at life and they go, well, maybe I'll just do whatever makes most people happy, or I'll do what makes me happy. I, I would say those are rational options. There are also irrational options, or at least one. Uh, some people just live their life by chance. They have no real guiding principle, no guiding ideals. They just roll the dice to see where one of the paths goes. It's kind of like what Robert Frost wrote in his famous poem, The Road Not Taken. He, at the end of his life, was so upset uh, that people misunderstood his poem. They said, he said, they, they were all concentrating on the choice I took, but he said, really what I was talking about is why I didn't choose the other path. Um, and he didn't choose the other path because it was well-worn. He wanted to go down the path that was not well-worn. Uh, but really, it's just kind of chance. And, and this idea of chance is so popular in our culture, particularly with younger people. You just live and go with the flow wherever life takes you. You, you follow the advice of country music philosopher Garth Brooks, who sang the words of, a, of another man, who wrote, I'm glad I didn't know the way it would end, the way it would go, because our lives are better left to chance. And then, of course, he then finishes the poem by saying, I could have missed the pain, but I would have missed the dance. And, and he, he, I guess he's talking about a dance he had with a girl, and it didn't work out. Uh, I don't know, but I can tell you this. I'm glad my life's not left to chance. 
So you have rational options, you have irrational options, you have religious options. Which pathway does your God require? And all the major religions of the world answer this question differently. You can follow karma and the path with its emphasis on reincarnation. You can follow Muhammad and Islam and find comfort in the guidance of a false god named Allah as you search for kismet, your fate or your destiny. You can even follow Christian liberalism where the emphasis is on being like Jesus and that by being like Jesus, you atone for your sins by doing good deeds. These are all options, but they're, they all lead to the same dead end. In a very real sense, you have a choice to make. You can choose the rational options of the greatest good for the greatest number, or the greatest good for me, or the irrational option of luck, or even the religious options available to you, or you can choose to trust God. That's the choice you must make. Then in essence, when you choose to trust God, you are turning away from unbelief. You're turning away from unbiblical choices to choose the chooser of life. And this is who Jesus is. Of course, if you're a Christian, you already know this. You know that turning to God means turning away from other avenues, other approaches to life, other solutions. You know that turning to Jesus means abandoning other religions, other ethical systems, other philosophies. You can't be a Christian and follow other gods. You can't be a Christian and an idolater. At the same time, these things are mutually exclusive from one another. But on the other hand, you can't be a Christian and follow no God. You have to follow God. Jesus is our God, our only God, our one God. And so the truth is, when Jesus came to the earth, he offered people forgiveness and blessing. But people who did not want him to be their God rejected this offer. And when I ask a question like, where are you headed in life? The answer to that question cannot be human philosophies or religions or even chance. It must be wherever God leads, wherever Jesus chooses. Now, the Gospel of Mark begins by presenting this choice. And here in this section, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, I want you to look right down at the text now. Look right at your text. Whether it's a tablet or a paper Bible, look right at the text. Beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, tracing all the way through chapter 3 and verse 6, there are five conflict stories. They are not given chronologically. Mark is not saying this happened, and then a couple days later, this happened. He's just taking these five stories that happened in the course of Jesus' public ministry, and he's putting them together. These five stories are about conflict that Jesus had with people who had another path to life. And this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, illustrate for us the conflict that people have between themselves and God today. The first four conflict stories are 
kind of leap off the page with a question that the Pharisees ask or the scribes. By the way, it's very interesting. I think there's a progression here. The first question they don't ask verbally. It's in their hearts. They're just reasoning in their hearts, in their minds. The second question they ask the disciples. The third and the fourth question they ask to Jesus directly. So I do kind of see a little bit of a progression here where now they're, they're kind of saying, okay, <laughs> I feel emboldened to ask Jesus a question. And these four questions reveal that these Pharisees do not believe in Jesus at all. These questions, well, they open the curtains on their hearts. But they also open the curtain on our hearts because we find here in these questions the same kind of conflicts that people have with God today. They have these same kind of conflicts with Jesus today. Let me tell you how contemporary this is. This is point number one, unbelief. And I'm going to say in any form, philosophy, religion, chance, whatever. Unbelief turns away from God's offer of life. Unbelievers reject life-giving forgiveness because they spurn the forgiver. This is the first story. And if you look at verse 6, notice the question. They say, there are certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who could forgive sin but God only? Now this conflict begins with Jesus. He's in his home. He's preaching the gospel to the people who have crowded around his house. And a lame man comes to him, but they can't get inside the door. And of course, you know the story. Uh, four men take him up onto the roof of the house. They pull back the tile roof. They open up the roof. They lower the man down to Jesus because they want the Lord Jesus to heal the man. So he's now laying in a stretcher in front of Jesus coming from the roof. And Jesus, it says, sees their faith, the faith of the four, the faith of the man laying in the bed who's lame. He sees their faith and he looks around and he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. So he hasn't healed him. He's just simply forgiven the man's sins. And this sets off the scribes and the Pharisees. They ask a very important question. Let's call this question one. Who can forgive sins? That's their question. Who can forgive sins? And of course, their answer in their, in their minds is only God does that. Can I tell you? That's the answer to the question. <laughs> They're sitting here looking at this situation, this scene play out, and they ask a question, and then they answer it themselves. But they don't listen to the obvious answer. They don't want to hear the obvious answer. So here in Mark chapter 2, this first conflict, you see in verse 6, or verse 7 rather, the answer is Jesus. But instead of accepting him as Lord, they reject him as Lord. In fact, what do they call him in the passage? They call him a blasphemer. He is one who is actually speaking blasphemies against God. That's what they think. But Jesus is not. His statement would be blasphemy if he wasn't God. But because Jesus is God, the only true God, what he's saying is absolutely right. And now they reject the forgiver. And I guess 
well, think about yourself out on a hike. This is signpost number one. Just kind of a little marker on a tree, right? This is signpost number one. Jesus forgives sins. Who can do that but God? Jesus then must be hmm, signpost one. Let's look at the second conflict story. Not, not only do they spurn the forgiver, they scoff now the forgiven. Look at verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with publicans and sinners, they said to the disciples, how is it that he eats with and drinks with publicans and sinners? This second conflict comes after Jesus had table fellowship with those who were considered to be wicked. You remember, he's just called Matthew, son of Alphaeus, Levi here, to be his follower, to come after him. And, and apparently Matthew's friends give him a going away party. And look at who his friends are. I mean, he was a publican. He was a tax collector himself. And his friends are publicans. They're tax collectors, the outcasts of Jewish society because they were partnering with the Romans to collect taxes from the Jews. And then sinners, people whose reputations were so destroyed by their sin that they were known as sinners. And Jesus is now sitting down with them and joining with them in a meal. He's having dinner with these wicked people. And this sets off the scribes and Pharisees. So now they ask the disciples, this is question two. Jesus eats with sinners now? They would never do this. They would never associate themselves with somebody like this, with unbelievers like this. And this should have led them to another conclusion, right? Just like the first question, who can forgive sins? Only God. Hmm. This should lead them to another con conclusion, right? Jesus forgives sins. He also cares about sinners. And that conclusion should be sticking in their mind. He forgives sins. He cares about sinners. Let's call this signpost number two. We're walking through the woods. We see the first signpost. Who can forgive sins but God? Jesus just forgave sins. Jesus must be... Hmm. Signpost number two. Jesus eats with sinners. He must care about sinners. The forgiver of sin cares about sinners. Hmm. Signpost number two. Not only do they reject life-giving life -giving forgiveness, they reject life-enhancing blessing. You see this? They want sadness instead of gladness. <clears throat> you look at verse 18, chapter 2. They, here's our third question. They came to him and say, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but not your guys? Now, this third conflict comes because of differing views on fasting. Now, I'm not going to go through a complete theology of fasting for you. I will tell you something straight out. I do not ever fast. And the reason is because it is an Old Testament concept. There was only one day the Jews were prescribed to fast in the Old Testament. It was the Day of Atonement. Now, later, the rabbis came along 
and built in a bunch of other days that they were supposed to fast. And then the Pharisees came along and they enhanced that so where they were fasting twice a week, it was like Mondays and Thursdays, they would fast. During the day, they would fast. And the reason you fasted was because it was a sign of mourning, of weeping, of sadness. And, and the whole concept of fasting was that you were being sad. That's why Jesus says, look, if you're going to fast, wash your face, right? Uh, brighten up your face. Don't be, look sad so that other people will know you're fasting because then you've, you've already received your reward. Everybody's kind of clapping. Look, he's, he's so pious because he's fasting. <clears throat> fasting is part of mourning. Now, I will argue since the advent of Jesus, fasting has almost disappeared. In fact, it's only mentioned one time in the epistles. Uh, you find it in 1 Corinthians. And even that place where it's mentioned, I think that's a scribal addition. The earliest manuscripts do not have the word fasting. It just has the word prayer. Uh, I don't want to get into lower criticism here, but I will argue that in the epistles, fasting does not even appear. So you do find Jews like Paul, even after he becomes a Christian, he still does fasting, but it, there's just no prescription for it in the New Testament at all for believers and how they should fast. Because fasting is mourning. Folks, we don't mourn. In fact, even when we have some a loved one die, what are we told to do? We don't mourn like people who have no hope. We don't sorrow like them. So I argue, actually, Jesus has brought us joy instead of sadness. He's brought us happiness. Fasting comes with brokenness. We've been made whole in Christ, which is why, again, this sets off the religious leaders. They don't like that. <clears throat> so they ask, and here's question number three. All these other groups, they're fasting. Your disciples don't fast. <clears throat> and, and they, you know, fasting was a way of showing their piety. It was a means, they believed, for getting what they wanted from God. If I fast enough, then God will actually do what I wanted to do. There are books, by the way, written by Christian authors today that you can buy talking about different kind of fasts for what you want. Uh, that's just nonsense. Gobbledygook right? It's, it's wrong. This should have led them to a conclusion. You know, you're looking at Jesus. Why, why, don't, why aren't they doing that? Well, that's a fair question, but it should have led them to a conclusion. Now, Jesus replies to them in parables, and, he, and he's actually saying to them, <clears throat> you know, the whole landscape has changed. My coming has changed everything. And what did it change? How did he say that? Well, he gives the parable of the wedding guests, and he says, how can these people mourn if I'm with them? He says, there's going to come a time when, he, when I'm taken away, and then they will mourn. When was that? I think that's the, the few days Jesus is dead, or he's in the grave before his resurrection. I actually don't believe that's after his resurrection, because after that, it's all about rejoicing. It's all about being happy in Christ, being joyful in Christ. Uh, as Paul says in Philippians, rejoice evermore. So I think here he's saying, okay, when the bridegroom's taken away, they'll fast. But, but after he's uh, back or with them, they wouldn't fast. Then he says, let me give you a, another explanation. Let me talk to you about old things and new things. He says, I, you don't 
take a piece of cloth and, and, and sew it into an old garment. The old garment is still ripping. It'll just ruin the new piece of cloth. You don't take new wine that's unfermented and you don't put it into an old hard wineskin, uh, a leather bottle that's become hard because as it ferments, it will actually break the bottle. He says you put, you put unfermented wine, unfermented oinos just means juice. You don't put that into a bottle uh, to ferment uh, because as it ferments, the gases expand and it'll break the bottle. So you put it into a new wineskin that's flexible, that's, that's, that's uh, uh, malleable. And so they should have realized, he says, something new is upon them. And let's call that signpost number three. So they've had these other signposts, right? Who forgives sins but God only? Hmm. Uh, you know, Jesus loves sinners. Hmm. Now here's signpost number three. Now there is something brand new happening from God. It's different from the old. Hmm. And that leads us to our fourth conflict. <clears throat> Not only do they want sadness instead of gladness, the Pharisees wanted law instead of liberation. Look at verse 24. The Pharisees said to him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day which is not lawful? Now this fourth conflict <clears throat> comes as a result of the disciples eating grain that they are picking on the Sabbath day. Now the Pharisees had restrictions on the Sabbath day that prohibited such work. You need to understand it wasn't stealing to go into somebody's farm and pick grain from their farm. In their culture, that was considered okay. In our culture, that would be stealing. If you went into the local apple orchard and just picked yourself a barrel of apples and didn't pay for it, you're going to get in trouble with the law. That, that wouldn't be the case in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament world. But they restricted Sabbath work. This was the reason why they asked the question. They believed to truly be in keeping with the law of Moses. You couldn't work at all on the Sabbath day. This was part of their self-righteousness. And so watching the disciples picking this grain, it really sets them off. So they ask question four. Why are your disciples doing that? Why are they breaking our Sabbath laws? And the Pharisees want Jesus to rebuke his disciples. But you realize if Jesus does that, he's capitulating to their made-up rules. And Jesus can't do that. So instead, what really should have been happening is that the Pharisees themselves should have been coming to a completely different conclusion about Jesus. Just like Jesus is the forgiver of sin, that's different. Just because like Jesus eats with sinners, that's different. And just like Jesus is now eating this grain on the Sabbath day, that's different. This should have led him to a conclusion that he points to the Old Testament. You know what David did in Sabbath violation. He says, you've got this whole Sabbath thing all wrong. The Sabbath day was made for man's benefit, not man for the Sabbath day. By the way, I, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Well, this is signpost number four. We're hiking through the woods. We see our signposts. Here's number four. There's a different approach to the law because the one who made the law is here and he says this is true. Jesus is greater than the law. Well, that ought to tell him something. 
Now those four signs, Jesus forgives sins, He eats with sinners, He's replaced mourning with joy, He's reorienting one's approach to Sabbath rules. Those four signs should have told the Pharisees everything they needed to know, but they refused to listen. <clears throat> and why is that? Because in their hearts, they're in unbelief. And if you are an unbeliever, you should ask yourself, who is Jesus? He forgives sins. He loves sinners. He's change, changing sadness for gladness, changing law for liberation. My friends, Jesus is everything the world says they want out of life if they would only pay attention. If they'd only just look up and see him and the offer that he's making. So do you believe that? You need to answer this question in your heart. Do you believe that Jesus is the one and only true God? The one and only true God. And the only way to God is through him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Because if you don't believe, you're rejecting God's offer of life. You're rejecting the life giver. Which leads me to my second point. It's much shorter than the first one, so don't be worried. Unbelief, because it rejects Jesus, embraces death. Well, Jesus has been listening to their questions. Now it's his turn to ask them a question. He's been kind of back listening to what they've had to say. Now he gets to speak. And you'll see here, unbelievers prevent others from being rescued. They don't want to be rescued. They don't want anybody else to be rescued. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 4. He said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day to, or to do evil, to save life or to kill? These Pharisees, they want help for themselves but not for others. Friends, this fifth conflict is different. Now the scenario unfolds and Jesus is demanding that these Pharisees answer a question. He's saying, you must answer me. Here's my question for you. Now you need to understand that in the, in the way that the, the disciple-rabbi relationship worked, that oftentimes the disciples would be asking the question of their teacher. Why are you doing this? What does this mean? And you see through the Gospels, the disciples are always asking questions. How can we pray? What is the sign of your coming? They, they just ask questions. You don't always see Jesus asking them a question. That wasn't typically the way it happened. Now, the Jews are known for responding to a question with a question. That sometimes happens. That's a way of teaching. But here now, Jesus, he comes into the synagogue. It's a Sabbath day again. Uh, <clears throat> obviously a different Sabbath day. He comes into the synagogue and there's a man there and his hand is withered. His hand is lame. We don't know why. It was disease. Maybe it was an injury. He has a withered hand. And, and Jesus sees the man with the withered hand. He knows what's, what's going on because it's a Sabbath day. And, and he knows that they're all watching him, what, what he's going to do. And so Jesus says to the man with the hand, hey, uh, stand up. Stand out, stand forth, come out here where everyone can see you. You know, the guy's probably saying, it's okay. You know, it's really fine. 
I can use the other hands good. I don't need, you know, I don't, I'm not an octopus. I don't have eight hands. I've already used one. I'm, I'm happy. It's fine. But Jesus, stand, come out here. Stand out here. So here's the guy. He comes out. He stands there. And Jesus looks at these men and he says, okay, you answer me a question now. You be the rabbi. I'll be the student. Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good? Is it, is it lawful to save life? Now, in another gospel account of this story, Jesus prefaces this question with a statement. You see, on a Sabbath day, he says, you people, you'll go if you have an animal and he gets caught in a ditch or if he gets stuck in a bush, you'll go and you'll release your animal. We, we have an expression in church that we say, your ox is in a ditch. You don't have an ox and you probably don't have a ditch. Uh, maybe you do. I don't know anybody in the church who has an ox. If you have one, maybe we could cook it up sometime. That'd be nice. I don't think anybody owns an ox. But if, but the ox in a ditch is just an expression which means circumstances have happened that just you can't do what you would normally do. And, and he says, which of you having an ox, if it goes in a ditch, you wouldn't go and rescue your ox? But what about this man? Is it lawful for me? It's apparently lawful for you to go help your animal. Is it lawful for me to help this person? You see what Jesus is saying to them is simply this. Are people more important than animals in your law? The way you look at Moses? Aren't people more important than animals? <clears throat> well, the Pharisees, they listen to Jesus' question, and they're looking at the man with the hand, and obviously their answer is, you can't heal him. That's obviously the answer. In fact, in another situation, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, when Jesus is healing people, says, you come on a different day to be healed. You know, he's not going to rebuke Jesus because he knows that, that might not turn out well, right? He's, he's making everybody who's sick well and healed. Maybe he's going to make me sick. So, you know, I'm not going to rebuke Jesus, but, but you come on a different day. You've got six days to come to be healed. You come on one of those days. I don't know if Jesus will be here or not, but you come on one of those days. So here we have Jesus, and he's looking at them, and it's very interesting because their rules are hindering others from being helped. And Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy, and all of that makes Jesus really, really mad. He looks on them with anger. The emotion in his heart is one of violent anger, his temper is boiling. <clears throat> there, there are people who think all anger is bad. All anger is not bad. When God's angry, you should be angry. When Jesus is angry, you should be angry. And Jesus is angry at their hypocrisy, at their man-made rules, which is causing this person to remain in the state that he is. He's angry at them, and they're refusing to speak. He's demanded of them an answer. Come on, you're the teacher. You tell me. What's the answer to this question? It says they're silent. They will not speak. And Jesus now, and can you imagine the scene? He's standing there. The man with the withered hand is standing there. And Jesus is looking in their eyes. And it's pointed. And it's direct. And it's angry. And it's at them. I, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is spiritual road rage. That's what's happening. I mean, they're looking up in the rearview mirror. 
and they see Jesus' eyes looking at them. Uh-oh. Jesus is really mad. It's not sinful anger. It's righteous anger. And then he says, fine. And he heals the man. And this is signpost number five. Jesus tempers law with mercy. God's highest ethic is life. I tell people this all the time. This is, this is how I think. This is how I live. When I get to difficult questions, this is how I answer them. This is how I vote as an American. God's highest ethic is life. Unbelief leads people to embrace death. These Pharisees are perfectly willing to let this man with a withered hand live as he is for as long as it will be. They do not care of him at all. But Jesus does. Now, I want you to see this. This is signpost number five. You're walking in this woods and you look up and you see these signposts and this is the path of God. This is God's way. And what do the Pharisees do? Instead of saying, this is the direction I should go, they actually turn around and they begin walking in the other direction. Because look at verse 6. Now we have the conclusion of the five conflict stories. All of those conflict stories, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, going through chapter 3 and verse 5, those five stories that Mark has put together, just kind of, it almost feels like he's hastily thrown them together. They all come now to a conclusion. Look at verse 6. And the Pharisees left, and immediately they joined in council with the Herodians against Jesus. How can we destroy him? They unite with other unbelievers. These Pharisees and the Herodians, they were enemies. They, they believed totally different things. You need to understand the Herodians, they, they were half Jews. And you know how the Jewish people love the half Jewish people. <laughs> it's the worst. You know how much they embrace the Samaritans. You, you know how much they love the Galileans. Well, here they are with the Herodians, the Hasmoneans, the people from Edom, half Jews, half uh, the, other son, uh, the other son of Isaac, Ishmael, or, or rather Edom, Esau. You have Jacob, you have Esau, and you have, and you have here these Edomites, these Esauites, half Jews, half sons of Esau, and these Hasmoneans, these Herodians, uh, they and the religious leaders of the Pharisees never got together, but now they're together because they want to destroy Jesus. They're taking counsel, they're crafting their plan, and they target the one who should be believed. <clears throat> I was at uh, the beach um, a few years ago, and I looked up and there was a, a plane with a skywriter. You know, he had, he had the little, he's doing the little skywriting with the cloud thing. I don't know how they do that. Obviously, it's not a cloud. Puffs of smoke or however they do that. It was, you know, it fades over time. 
but he's up there and he's writing the word Jesus in the sky. You know, it took me a while to figure it out because the J I got and I thought, okay, J, what company starts with J? Because I'm thinking it's a business. Well, he got about halfway through the word and I finally realized this is a religious thing. He's, he's putting Jesus in the sky. Okay, that's kind of neat. All right. D do you realize that's how obvious this is? Jesus is here on earth. He's doing all these things. He's healing people. He's teaching all of these things. These five conflict stories, the first four particularly, are all telling you, here it is who Jesus is. And you should be like a guy in the woods. I'm not lost. There's the sign. It's got the little hiker guy on it. It's an orange, you know. You got the little hiker guy. It's got his little hiking pole, you know, and he's walking through the woods. And you go, okay, it's on that tree. Okay, it's on that tree. And you're just walking through the woods. I'm going in the right direction. This is the way I should go. This is what Jesus called the narrow road that leads to eternal life. I'm on the right road. It may be difficult. I might have to climb up over, over rocks. I may have to go through muddy patches. It may be a difficult hike. But I know I'm on the right path that comes to the end I want to be at. I am uh, fully cognizant of where I'm going, where I'm in. What do you say about the hiker who looks at the five signs? You see the signposts on the trees. You get to the fifth one and you go, you know, the guy looks at his wife, honey, I think we're lost. I don't know where we are. I'm in the woods. I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely lost. Maybe the wife looks at him. Are you crazy? You, you can see the little orange hiker dude on the tree, right? He's right there. How can you miss it? No, I don't think that's right. And maybe there's another couple there, and, a, and they're saying, yeah, this isn't right. We're lost. This is, this is all wrong. Let's, let's, let's turn back. Let's take another. This looks like a path. Let's go this way. And now you have a bunch of people walking down the wrong road, down the wrong path. Aaron was here last weekend, and Becky got up one morning and said, hey, let's all go for a hike. I don't want to go for a hike. I don't particularly like hiking. I hiked in the military. I camped and hiked in the military. I don't particularly like these things. She loves to hike. You know, it's one of those things you should ask when you're dating. Do you like hiking? This might not work out. Well, we were halfway around our hike, and we were already miles in. I'm looking. It was I could see the GPS where our car was, where we were, but it wasn't anywhere close to a trail. I mean, the trail went way up around a lake, and it had to come back to where the parking lot was. And I said, we should just go this way through the woods. I mean, obviously, the car's there. I can see where we are. It's just flat woods. Let's just walk through the woods. Well, Aaron's game for that. Let's just walk through the woods. And, and Becky was, uh, okay. And so we, we walked just a little bit and immediately came upon a man with his dog who obviously knew what he was doing. He knew where he was. He, was, he wasn't lost at all. knew where he was. And uh, I said, hey, uh, we want to get back to our car. I showed him on my phone. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So you just keep walking through the woods like you are. It's fine. But, it, you know, it's off trail. But you keep walking through the woods, and you'll come to a road, and then you turn to the left. And you'll take you right to your car. I said, okay, that makes sense. Great. So we walked, and we got to the road. It wasn't that far. We got to the road. And I looked at my phone, and I looked at my car, and I went, turn left. No. That can't be right. I mean, my, my car's over there. <laughs> The road's going this way. My car's over there. I'm going to turn to the right. 
turn to the left, I'm going to turn to the right. So we turned right. Well, we walked for two or three minutes. I pull out my phone again. I'm farther away from my car. Now, how can that be? That's not right. So we keep walking. Another couple of minutes. Not long. Believe me, Becky's not going to walk along down a road with me for very long, especially when I'm going against what the guy said, right? Well, I'm, I'm old enough now and mature enough now that when I'm wrong, I can admit it. I have no trouble saying I think I'm wrong. So I'm looking at the phone, and I go, uh, I, uh, we should have turned left. So they're just, oh, turn around, you know, fine. We're out of water. We're stuck in this woods. We're on this road. So we turn around. Five minutes later, we're back at the point where we were. We came out of the woods. You know, it's amazing. We're much closer to our car again. Keep walking. About five or six minutes later, I have no idea how, but there was our car. You know, that guy was right. He knew where to go. He knew the right road to take. My friends, life is saying, hey, do what's best for everybody. Hey, do what's best for you. No, forget that. Just gamble. Just roll the dice. Do what feels right in the moment. Just let chance guide you. Hey, no. You need to follow Allah. You need to follow some other God. That's the right way to go. My friends, you can go down those roads, but you'll always be walking in the wrong direction. Or you can say, what did the guide tell me to do? What did the guide say? The nice man with the dog. He said, go that way and you'll find where you're headed. The scriptures, the Lord Jesus, our faith is our guide. Walk down that road where Jesus leads me. I will follow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. It's uh, helpful. It, it leads us and guides us. It's, it's uh, your Holy Spirit leading and guiding. It's, it's your words. It's your teaching. It's the faith that we have in you that's our guide. Thank you for that. And help us as believers to embrace the life-giving offer of forgiveness in salvation, to, to embrace the life-enhancing blessings that you offer to those who follow you and to reject the embrace of death. Before I finish praying, some of you are embracing death right now. You need to be honest in your heart. You are not a follower of Jesus. Honest in your heart, you know that's true. You are not a follower of Jesus. You're following something else. You're following man-made philosophies. What's best for the group? What's best for me? You're following chance, maybe. You're even possibly following a false god. Not Jesus. You need to follow him. You're here this morning.
say, Pastor, that's me. I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to be. If that's your prayer, I'd love to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand? Pastor, pray for me. I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to be. Just raise your hand. I'll pray for you. It doesn't mean you'll be a Christian. It, does, it just means you're interested in being a follower of Jesus. Just raise your hand if that's something you're interested in doing. Say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I really do. Just, just slip it up so I can see it. Anybody at all, I want to pray for you. Now, maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not a very good follower. You get lost in the woods all the time because you're really not listening to his guidebook. You're not listening to his words, not carefully. And maybe you're here and the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to your heart. I don't want you to raise your hand. I just, in your heart, I want you to say, okay, Lord, there's something in my life. I know I'm not going the right direction. And, and you're telling me to turn around. And right now, this kind of, this whole illustration kind of lends itself to this application, you're a believer, but you're just not headed in the right direction. So in your heart, would you just say to the Lord, I know I'm going the wrong way with your spirit. Help me turn. Just do that in your heart right now. Don't raise your hand. Just do it. Lord, I'm going the wrong way. But by your spirit's power, I want to turn around and go the right way. That's what we call repentance. And that's something we should all be doing all the time. So you're here this morning. You say, I know I'm, I'm lost in the woods. I need to get back on the right path. Um, help me to do that, Lord. Just pray that to the Lord right now. Father, help us all to always be walking the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Not to get off on a rabbit trail. Not to chase down some glittery, shiny thing of the world. But to follow the way you want us to go. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel, for what it does for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. You go to the Lord as she